continuing our series today on uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's called Call Me the Breeze. And like I said, we learned, um, we learned a few important basic principles about the Holy Spirit last week in week one. Thing number one is that the Holy Spirit is God. Um, the whole, when we talk about the Spirit, we are talking about the Spirit that flows from the living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Um, you know, historically, Christians have used the term Trinity to describe how God reveals himself in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, but Christians, it's important to remember that Christians are monotheists. The Lord, our God, is one. Now, the other thing is that the Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. The, the Spirit is not an abstract force that may or may not be present at any given time. He is a personal, ever-present presence who has breathed life into his creation and sustains it with his, oh, sorry, with his dynamic energy. As such, his energy, his activity is personal in nature. So the, in Christ, the Holy Spirit seeks to sanctify every last bit of you to the glory of God the Father. To do that, he needs to know every last bit of you. Yeah, even that part. Number three from last week was that the Holy Spirit's primary mode of action is ordinary. Remember that God is God of all and the Spirit sustains his creation. So he isn't just present when things get fiery. It's not that God doesn't work in and through extraordinary moments. Next week we're going to learn, uh, we're going to talk about Pentecost and how that was an important moment in the life of the church. But it's also important to talk about how the Spirit is a continued, sustained presence in the life of the church, in the life of the believer. Um, his normal mode of activity is being with you every day, each and every day, as you do everything that you do. Even the things that don't seem very religious, right? He is as much a part of the natural world as he is active in the supernatural. He is ordinary before he is extraordinary. So that's step one, or at least step one, two, three. Today, though, I want us to go to the words of Jesus. And I want us to look at a time when Jesus describes the Spirit's activity once he has ascended to the Father. To do this, we'll spend some time working through the Gospel of John, the book of John. Um, so uh, turn there if you haven't already. God, uh, John stands out among the four Gospels because his narrative, it's not what we would call synoptic. Mark and Matthew and Luke are what's called synoptic Gospels, meaning that they tell the story of Jesus in a very similar way. In fact, they often use the same source material. John, on the other hand, stands out because he carves his story into at least two big sections. The first section is what we call the Book of Signs, which records Jesus' miracles and his teaching around them. And then the second section is the Book of Glory, which records Jesus' upper room discourse, as well as account, uh, accounts of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and that aftermath. The Book of John begins with a prologue, and then begins the story with John the Baptist, who had been baptizing people in the Jordan River. The Jewish leaders of the day asked John who he is and, and what he's been doing. And, and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and says, I am, the one, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. 
make straight the way of the Lord. John says that he's, he's been baptizing with water, sort of a, a new day, new way cleansing. His baptism is for repentance. That is, that the people of God would turn back to God in anticipation of the coming Messiah. The reason John is doing this is to make way for one much greater than he, who is about to do this amazing God thing in their midst. So John chapter 1, uh, let's look at verse um, 29, beginning in verse 29. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, he said, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, so here we see Jesus' first arrival on the scene and a description of why he is so special. The moment that John sees him, I mean, picture this like, this crowd, the, the moment that John sees him is kind of this, perhaps maybe an awkward moment. Um, John sees him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, if somebody yelled me at that, like in the grocery store, that would be kind of awkward. Anyway, how specifically that happens is through, as John says, baptism of the Holy Spirit. John tells us that the Spirit descends from heaven like a dove and rests on Jesus. Jesus, uh, John baptized with water, but Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? The word spirit in the passage is the word pneuma, which means current of air or breathe, uh, breath or breeze. But the word also carries a, a figurative connotation of, of sort of a spiritual entity, which is why many throughout church history have chosen to speak uh, rather than the Holy Spirit, they've chosen to speak of the Holy Ghost. You may have been a part of a church tradition that, that used that term. The benefit of, of ghost might be that it's easier to make the connotation that, that pneuma is personal. Um, usually when we refer to ghosts, uh, we are speaking of something that has a, a personal aspect of character. Casper the friendly ghost and Slimer who slimed Bill Murray. Still, the word ghost just carries with it too many other connotations for those very reasons in our culture, and it, and it kind of runs the risk of breaking that third principle that we discussed a few minutes ago, that the work of the, of the pneuma is ordinary, more than, just special, uh, more than just a special kind of supernatural experience. But that being said, the spirit does occasionally act in special supernatural experiences. And, and this situation with, with John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus, is one such occasion. John saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove from heaven. We don't really know what that means. You can ask John one day about it when you meet him. The Spirit rests on Jesus 
And John connects the dots between what he had been doing, baptizing with water, and what Jesus will do with baptizing in the Holy Spirit. This has been an element of kind of, of controversy in the church historic, but, but I am operating under the understanding, operating with the understanding that, that baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of conversion. When you become a follower of Christ, when you become a Christ follower, God begins a Holy Spirit working. Obviously, that doesn't mean that sin is completely removed from your life, but it does mean that you are born again. We didn't just make that up. We, we actually got that phrase from Jesus. Turn two chapters ahead uh, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is an extremely beloved passage. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Like, don't backtalk me, don't backtalk me, Nicodemus. Um, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we already saw a bit of the relationship between water and spiritual baptism. There's lots that we could say about this, but for now, I think it's safe to say that water baptism represents a, a proclamation of repentance and faith that points towards a spiritual reality of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So keep a finger in John 3 and turn back. We're doing a lot of Bible jumping today, but turn back to, wait for it, Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, this might be a clue to what Jesus was getting at. Ezekiel chapter 36. Chapter 36 beginning in verse 24 and we'll go down to verse 28. This is God speaking uh, through Ezekiel to uh, Israel who had been in exile. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will, I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So it's all there, right? God is calling idolatrous Israel to repentance and right relationship to him. 
And the image of renewal that we get of, of, is God cleansing his people with water and giving them a new heart by putting his spirit within them so that they might enter the land. In an earlier Ezekiel passage, we see uh, God say uh, that it wasn't for the sake of Israel that all of this was done, but rather for the sake, it says, for the sake of God's holy name. God isn't about the business of blessing Israel just so that they can sit back and be blessed and happy. God blesses Israel for greater purposes, for godly purposes. So jump down to verse 33 in Ezekiel 36. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead um, of being desolation, instead of the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by, they will say, this land that was desolate, that was desolate, has become like, and look at this, the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. That's the Holy Spirit. Renewal, healing, restoration, not just for the sake of Israel themselves, but for the sake of God's holy name in order that the nations all around Israel shall know God's name as well. The Spirit renews so that others will see what God has done and know that God rebuilds the ruins. God replants, replants what was desolate. I mean, have you ever felt like, like those words applied to, to your life? Have you, have you ever prayed, you know, maybe in the middle of the night? Have you ever just said, God, I feel like my life is in ruins? Have you ever felt like and said, God, I, I, I feel like I'm desolate. I feel like I am in a state of bleak and dismal emptiness. Have you ever said that? Have you ever felt like love and joy and peace and hope are just like fantasies that other people get to enjoy but, but not you? The Bible says, I have good news for you. Our God is a God of life-giving renewal. No matter how desolate you were, no matter how far gone you think you are, nothing, the Bible says, is beyond the grasp of the life-giving, renewing, dynamic energy of the Holy Spirit of Yahweh. God promises Israel that renewal will happen and that he, he, he'll do it. He will rebuild their city so thoroughly that other people will see it and start thinking of the Garden of Eden and then, with your fingers, having still been in John chapter 3 this whole time, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless a person is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. The term born again, it's developed kind of a rough connotation in our culture, right? 
But, but just dream for me for a moment. What if, what if others heard the term born again and they didn't immediately think of a people who are judgmental legalist hypocrites and instead saw a people so committed to their God that words like renewal and restoration were connected and associated to their name? What if Catonsville and the greater Baltimore area looked at churches like New Hope, looked at New Hope and said, you know what, I, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but I want to love others the way that they love others. I don't know if I believe what they believe, but I want to hire as many of them as I can. I mean, let's just dream for a moment about what New Hope could mean for the renewal of this area. As God builds this church, we are invited to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit to help address the things about our city that seemed ruined and desolate. Think about what that means for Catonsville. Think about what that means for Baltimore, a, a city that many have given up on. God's not. God's not given up on this city. God's not given up on our home. It doesn't mean that we have all the answers, far from it, but it means that by the Spirit's lead, we can be a part of what he is doing to renew all things. That's what it means to be the church. And for some of, uh, for some of you, some of you know, um, there was a time when a great spiritual awakening happened in this room, in this space right where I am, fortunately not where you are, but where I am right now. Folks all around the county, all around the state would flock to St. Timothy's for passionate experiences of spirit-filled worship and healing. Every seat was filled. Standing room only, I've been told. I believe that that could happen again. With all of my heart, I want to follow the Spirit's lead and I want to see this space filled with worship and experiences of new birth as more and more people come to Christ. When I pray for new hope, that is what I pray for. But salvation, the movement of the Holy Spirit, sanctification, renewal, none of that happens just so that the people of God can sit back and be comfortable. Salvation happens so that we can be a blessing to those outside our doors. Now, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves theologically, though. Jesus, back in John 3, tells Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And then we get the key passage there, the one that everybody loves, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the next crucial, crucial principle regarding the Holy Spirit is that, which is mentioned in the Nicene Creed, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Major element of, uh, of, of controversy throughout church history, by the way. But right here, it's important to mention that the creed also says that, the Father, that with the Father and the Son, he is also glorified. So the Holy Spirit is equal in deity and majesty with the Father and the Son. So then why does the, uh, the, this creed say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? 
Well, zoom back for a moment and, and think about the, the big picture of the biblical narrative. You know, you got Genesis 1 and 2, right? God creates this beautiful world um, that is in harmony with humanity, or harmony with heaven. Genesis 3 through 11, humanity rebels in the worst possible way imaginable, breaking harmony between them and their creator. Genesis 11, it recounts the story of the Tower of Babel, a story that speaks of humanity attempting to use their own cunning and their own ingenuity to reach the heavens. It doesn't work. We don't turn the page from the Tower of Babel in the, end of Gen in the middle of Genesis 11 and then arrive at Pentecost. No, we are given a story, the vast majority of the Bible, we are given a story that shows God calling Israel to be the rescue mission to save the world, and then Jesus as the representative Messiah who fulfills that promise. When we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, we are respecting the story as it is given to us. That's not to say that the Spirit wasn't alive and present throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. He was. But the Spirit is revealed to us in a particular way. And this language in the Creed attempts to, to respect that. Saying that the Spirit proceeds from the Father of the Son is a way of affirming God the Father's role in calling Israel into existence. It's affirming the role of Jesus who made this renewal possible through His sacrifice on the cross. Jesus tells us that the Son of Man, that's him, must be lifted up. That's a reference to the crucifixion, but maybe more accurately, it's actually a reference to the entire Christ event, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We're almost out of time, but turn with me to, to John chapter 14. This is Jesus's, um, part of Jesus' upper room discourse. The, the words he spoke to them after, after washing their feet. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. So God has big things in store for, him, for his church, but in order to do these things, um, in order to do this work of renewal and new birth, Jesus must go to the Father. In fact, it's because he has gone to the Father, evidently, that these things are possible. In verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells, abides with you, and will be in you. Now the word helper, there, it's, it's the word uh, parakletos, or, or, or some, it's a paraclete, not parakete, paraclete. Um, it's, it's been translated helper, or comforter, or friend, or counselor. I think my favorite translation is advocate. You might have recognized the, the word para in there, meaning to, to come alongside. There may be some kind of a, like a legal implication here, like, like the Holy Spirit is our advocate with the Father, like, like our legal counsel. 
But, but we would, shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, that Jesus says that the Father would send another helper, meaning that he already sent one. The Holy Spirit, he, he's, like, he's like our lawyer um, who comes alongside us and argues our case before God, the judge. But the, father, the Spirit, he's not like a slimy lawyer. He's not interested in helping us ignore the consequences of our sins ignoring the consequences of our actions. No, when our sins have been laid out before the eternal judge and judgment comes down, it'll be determined that debt, a debt must be paid. And at that point, the advocate will be able to say that all of the debt has been paid. And as such, we will be able to be in right relation with the judge once again. Now, law court imagery can only take us so far. After all, the truth is that the judge, the advocate, and the one who paid the debt are all the same God. I suppose the most important thing to take away from all of this is God is on your side. I mean, how are you today? Right at this moment, church. Are you tired, weary, broken? Do you feel desolate? Do you feel empty? The reason the church exists is to give you the good news that God is on your side. The question he's going to ask every one of us is, are you on my side? God told Israel that it wasn't for their sake that they were experiencing renewal, that they were to experience renewal. It was for the sake of his holy name, his holy agenda, the coming of his kingdom. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, offering us new birth and new spirit, his spirit. Have we accepted that gift? Or are we going to continue trying to either improve the world by our own efforts, according to our own understanding and righteousness, or are we all going to just ignore it altogether? Jesus tells us that it is for our own benefit that he has ascended because that's how the Holy Spirit becomes our advocate. That's how the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and empowers the church. God is on your side. Are you on his? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... Uh, for this breeze that um, welcomed me as I rode my bike to church today. I just thank you for reminding me of your renewal, of the character of your restoration, and reminding me that um, it is not my responsibility to solve the problems of the world. It is my responsibility to follow your lead, follow the breadcrumbs of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Follow those breadcrumbs of the fruit of the Spirit in order to affect real change in this world, to be a voice of love the way that you define and not the way that I define. Father, I just ask especially for kindness during this time. I ask that, that you will help me be more kind to others giving them the benefit of the doubt, giving them 
forgiveness. It's a weird time, Father. There certainly is times when this feels desolate, when this feels empty. Father, remind us of your incredibly alive, moving Holy Spirit. Help us live into your dynamic life. Help us to do all this by your glory, to your glory, not ours. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.